Hello, I'm James Woodcock, uh, owner of Pixel Refresh, and this is Game and Gadget Podcast number 29. And I have with me today a new guest to the Game and Gadget Podcast. It's Reese from Control Alt Reese. Hello. So thank you for joining us, Reese. And we'll certainly get on to more information about your background shortly. We also have Aaron Fothergill. Uh, a good regular of the Game and Gadget podcast uh, of Orgonaut games in the past. And uh, he's done iPhone apps, he's done Jaguar, CD32. This man has dabbled with everything. And his stories about trains and Meccano wagons are now historic. And we also have Steve Ince, who's recently announced his retirement in gaming specifically. But I'm pleased to say he's not retired from the Game and Gadget podcast. So thank you for joining us today, Steve. Hi. So, Steve, well, we'll start with you today, my friend. So you've announced your retirement, as I just said, specifically for the gaming area of it. So that means you're still going to be busy working on other things, uh, which you can tell us about in a moment. But why now, as the man who's been involved with Beneath a Steel Sky and Broken Sword and all these, the wonderful, the Witcher, for goodness sake, the Witcher. And now he's just announced his retirement with his first article on Pixel Refresh covering some of that. Tell me about that, Steve. Where did that come about? Basically, you know, sort of. It's not that I hit working in games all of a sudden. <laughs> you know, sort of, I've, I've had a very good career. You know, written a lot of different things for different games, and it's been a lot of fun. In you know, in the main, I mean, there have been some <laughs> some things I'd rather forget, but you know, sort of, they have been few and far between. And we'll have to talk about those in a minute, then. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the it was just you know, sort of the the fact that you know, I've just got so many of my own ideas that I want to concentrate on basically, um, you know, sort of like the books and, and comic stuff and, and things like this. So so it's really, you know, sort of a change of emphasis. Uh, and it just seemed a good a good point to kind of say, right, I'm from February next year, I'm, I'm retiring from games, because that will mark, then mark exactly 31 years <laughs> um, at that point. So, you know, sort of, I've actually been trying to think of things to do to mark that, you know, sort of, should I just invite people round to the pub? <laughs> that always works well, historically, mm. but carry on. <laughs> For those who are interested in and, and can make it. But I did wonder, you know, whether February was a good idea to do that, you know, time to do that. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see. But, um, I mean, if someone offered me a lot of money to um, work on a game, I, I, I might not turn it down. <laughs> oh, here we go. It's semi-retirement. <laughs> right no, you know, I mean, one of the things about working in games was the fact that, you know, I didn't seem to play as many games as I used to do. Um, because there were just so many deadlines and things like this. And I've been playing a, a few games <laughs> since I announced my retirement, but <laughs> you know, I've been itching to play for a while. So, you know, it's, it's things like this, you know, it's, it's, I want to get back into playing more games as well as, as anything else. Um, like so cool. it's, it's not, it's not about, you know, so anything other than, than a, a change of emphasis, I guess. Makes sense to so me. It's um, a rock star retirement then. So basically you're retired until another cool tour comes along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it's a lucrative deal, then, then yeah, yeah. you know. One that night only until next year. year. Yeah, the, fa the farewell tour. Quite big at the minute, <laughs> yeah. aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the games you've been able to play, which you've been sort of having to put off because of other sort of commitments. Not that many. As yet, I actually got round to Monument Valley 2, which is, you know, I wanted to play this for so long and just, you know, and it's just such a beautiful game. You know, sort of, some of the puzzles seem a bit simpler than the first one. But having said that, you know, thoroughly enjoying it. And then there's another one I downloaded, which I've forgotten the name of, 
<laughs> which is an adventure type game. Uh, and I want to get, you know, back into playing more more adventures because, you know, there, there are still a lot of them coming out, surprisingly. Ooh. And, you know, sort of, I just feel as though I've been neglecting them. You know, when you look at, you know, the, the stuff that, that Dave Gilbert has been putting out and, and some of the recent ones I haven't, I haven't got around to playing yet and things like this. You know, sort of. And... So there was a game I wanted to revisit that I never finished. Oh, that was it. It was Yorkshire Gubbins. <laughs> Yorkshire Gubbins. <laughs> Which is an adventure-type game. It's brilliant. You know, the voices are fantastic, and I never finished it. So hopefully I can get back to that and, and finish it off. Well worth looking. You know, it's one of these kind Ooh. of pixelated games, pixel art games, r rather than low res you know but there's a few of those around I started it's, it's amazing isn't it we've got all this modern hardware and yet there's so much for this nostalgia hey let's, we've got this 4k 8k display let's have these pixels that yeah. represent something from 320 by 200 or <laughs> I mean, this, that, that's some of Stu Cambridge would probably have a bit of a rant about because the, the, the whole thing with the pixel art style which is more of a style than an actual pixel art thing, is it's pixel art to look deliberately pixelated on an LCD display, whereas original pixel art was to try and look as unpixelated as possible mm, with as few right. points as possible on a CRT, which would nice and blend it. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, it, it is very much a, a, a style thing, you know, Definitely. anything else. There's a lot of uh, pixel artists, um, I'm a Big fan of Mastodon, and we'll not talk about Twitter, which is now called X, which will soon be called Dead. But uh, rather, the, <laughs> and I know you've been having fun with threads as well, Reese, from your rambles. But anyway, one thing I have noticed on Mastodon, there's a lot of artists who do mm. pixel art, but it really is pixel art. So they'll actually show you, here it is with the raw squares, the pixels. But then they'll show you, here it is taken on a CRT screen. And then Ooh. you can see how what looks very blocky in certain areas where actually on that CRT, just because of the way the technology works, it just looks beautiful. And you forget what the CRT did bring to those style of pixel, it would be called pixel art graphics. That was, they were some of the graphics at the time. Ooh. And how much, I mean, it was, you sort of say it was smoothing in some ways, but really it was just the way it was rendering that look of the graphics. And it, instead of it looking so raw and, dare I say, blocky without upsetting anybody, it was just creating like really smooth gradients. And it, it was, it makes me want to get a CRT again. Where on earth I'd put a CRT, I don't know, but it does make me want to get one. I mean, I'm. I'm looking at Reese here, and he's literally behind him. And I can count one, two CRTs at least. You're literally surrounded. It's like you've got a little mini museum there, Reese. So we'll we'll quickly jump to you in a minute. But Steve, just one last thing. You've also been looking at releasing more books. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I went a bit mad in the last few weeks, actually. <laughs> I released the book that was my fourth game writing book, but it's really just a collection of all the old articles that I wrote over the years. You know, just put them into a, a single volume and, 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 and such. So that was an easy one to do. <laughs> but then there's also, I just pulled together uh, my Krogel comic strips into one volume as well. Um, I don't know whether I'll be continuing with Krogel as a comic or whether I'll, I'll move into, you know, illustrated books on that side. It might be a little easier to, to, to do that way. But then I've, I've got so many others. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing a book for children in which one of the characters is a vampire, a young vampire. No, werewolf. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Twist. Important to make... Important to make the distinction, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a spoiler, least, surely. Yeah, the vampire <laughs> idea is 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 a sequel. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I was getting my um, ideas confused. There. 
That's going to be a bite-sized uh, volume, no doubt. At the moment, you know, just so much, so many ideas. Um, so yes, yeah, a werewolf. So it's all about, you know, kind of, you know, he, he has to go to school and make friends, and he's convinced that no one, nobody wants to be his friend and such. Um, so it's very so much it's like a, a happy kind tale. of, you know, children's friendship related story. But there's a lot of twists and yeah. turns and, and stuff like this. So. You have been writing for different age ranges, though, haven't you? Because you've had your comic strips, which can be verging on more adult, shall we say. Not X-rated, adult, let's get this clear. And then we've got sort of the more child-friendly, child-focused material. I'm trying to think, we had two characters before, which you did. We were, you did, a, and I think your wife did like a, a narration to it. We did like a little demo video. Oh, the um, Star, Star Sweet and Honey Heart. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. So that's... you've sort of been dabbling. <laughs> yeah, I want to do something with, more with that, you know, soon as well. <laughs> I need, well, I need, I need to be able to sort of like survive on zero hours sleep, you know, but I don't suppose that'll happen. Oof. As someone who's had a bit of a zero hour sleep recently, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, no. I used to, I used to hate those, you know, kind of like when you kind of get to crunch period on a, on a game, and and they go, oh yeah, we'll work all night. Nope, <laughs> I'm going home. I'll stay until eleven, but I'm going to catch the last bus home. You know, and it's just, it's crack, it's crackers because you don't end up winning. You know, people people stay, you know, sort of working all night. Well, then they've got to go to bed at some point, and so the next day nobody's in. You know, it's it's or or you go home at like we, we our girl at one point on, on projects we get to the point where we knew the exact time where if you go home now you'll get home just to the point where you've got to come back in for work the next day because there were sticklers about people turning up on time even if you'd done a late night. Oy. So there's this whole thing of people go home, they'll get a couple of hours of sleep and some, and some food and they'll come back in and then they'll be useless the next day. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and there's, there's, there's times where doing a late nighter is good. If you like, if you're in the zone, you just carry on going and then get something done, fair enough. But if you're just kind of pushing everyone to put hours in to try and get it through, it doesn't work. No, never does. Well, how many modern titles have we seen where they've gone through this major crunch period to try and get it out in time? And then the result is, well, actually, even with the day one patch, it's probably you're better waiting six months and then waiting <laughs> for it to be patched even further, in which case the value of the title has dropped and it's cheaper to buy because it's no longer the new thing. The reputation's been tarnished because the first experience has been a fairly average or bad one. So, uh, yeah, give give developers that little bit more time or bring pull back the scope a little and make it a little bit it's more realistic called, for the time frame. It's called planning. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's something that management don't do. You know, it's it's basically okay. This is how long realistically it takes to do this. So that's the time we'll give them, rather than an arbitrary random amount of time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Reese, I can't wait any longer. The man with the the background, which I'm envious of. I mean, I've got nice posters behind me, but you've literally surrounded by retro tech of all kinds. So, welcome to the Game and Gadget Podcast, Reese. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your channel control alt Reese. How did we get to this point? How did we get to this point? Yeah, it's a question I often ask myself. Yeah, I mean, how far back do you want me to go? Right to the very beginning, to uh, sort of seven-year-old Reese, or what, what was the point where you went, "Oh, I'm into this kind of technology," and then it became a hobby and you know, you're in a safe space here. Maybe a minor obsession as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been an Atari fan my whole life, and I've kind of always collected stuff. It, I guess, it was kind of when I sort of first started working for a living and went to university and had like a part-time job and stuff. And that's when I kind of started picking bits and bobs up. Obviously, early two thousands when like Jaguar stuff was dirt cheap because it was 
you know, not uh, not desirable at all. I mean, some would argue that the Jaguar was never, never desirable. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, I've been watching, um, you know, I've been watching YouTube since since the very early days, and, and watching, you know, like LGR and people like that, some of the, the early retro computing and retro gaming pioneers, and, and always wanted to have a go at it myself. And I've always kind of done like video editing and stuff like that as a hobby as well. And then it, it all just came to a point where I thought, well, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I should just get on with it and uh, give it a try and see how I get on. And that was. Um, that was sort of November, yeah, November 2019. I uploaded my first video, and I haven't stopped since. So yeah, it's been uh, it's getting on for four years now. Uh, Twenty two thousand odd subscribers, and still enjoying every minute of it, mostly. So fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think the hardest pressure with doing anything like that is the YouTube algorithm and yeah. the kind of things it's picking up on, and the, the kinds of faders people are releasing regularly which again ramps up the pressure to keep pushing stuff out. And ironically, one of your most popular videos was about solar and solar panels. You say was. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think that was? I mean, a, a channel that was really targeting sort of retro tech and Atari, and then all of a sudden you did one on solar panels, and then it just went crazy, insanely busy. It's... Yeah, so um, I wasn't expecting that video to do well at all, but I I started having like a lot of like DIY people building like DIY lithium batteries and solar setups and that kind of stuff, and I, I really got into it. And I thought I, I should give this a go myself. You know, it'd be fun to kind of put a, a small setup together just to see what I can run on it. So I went out and I bought a kit and I thought, oh, you know, I'll record this and I'll put it on the channel because it might be of interest to someone, you know. So I, I was, well, I still am essentially using it to power everything on the channel. And um, yeah, uploaded the video, didn't really think much of it. And I think it was the day after I uploaded it, the um, energy price cap went up on, um, you know, gas and electricity in the UK, the government announced, and it, it went up a lot. I mean, that this was... Um, around sort of July, August last year. And all of a sudden, everyone was going onto YouTube and searching for UK DIY solar setups because they were looking to sort of try and save some money. And I think I just hit it at exactly the right time. And I think because the video, because people kind of watched it all and they liked it and they commented on it and, and obviously kind of interacted with it, I think I think the algorithm kind of sees it as a, that as a favorable thing and a, as a positive thing for a video. And that just kind of gave it a huge boost. And within, I mean, bearing in mind, a typical video on my channel probably gets one or 2,000 views in its first couple of weeks, which is good. I, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm very happy with that. This one, I think within sort of three weeks to, to a month, had got, uh, I think, about 800,000 views. So, yeah, get, getting on for a million in the end, uh, which was absolute madness. And I, I was just, I was getting hundreds of comments on this video every day and obviously a lot of people telling me that I was doing stuff wrong and a lot of people saying, oh, it's, you know, this, this whole setup thing, it's a massive waste of money. It's not going to, it's not going to save you any money on your energy bills and why are you doing it this way? And I was just like, well, it was just a little project that I put together and thought I'd share with my viewers because I thought they'd find it interesting. And yeah, it was just absolutely crazy. Just the whole thing. So going back to your love of Atari, I mean, uh, back in the day, I had an Atari 65 XE. And this would be what would be, I guess, considered my first proper computer, as in it had a proper keyboard. And I love that thing. And I remember being mesmerized by playing Ghostbusters for the first time and getting that really sort of tinny voice going, Ghostbusters! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and all that stuff. And then there was a game called, I think it was uh, Leaper, where do, 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 and you jump through little gaps and you have to work your way to the top. And it it was just like, wow, it, it actually sounds good. Gone are the days where it's beep, 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 and all that stuff. It was actually, there was some music, the graphics were decent. It was a nice computer. But then, later on in years, I got a second-hand Commodore 64. But after that, now this is where it went completely diverged off into a completely different world. When people like Reese were buying their Atari STs, when there were other people buying their Amigas, and there was this whole competition between these two sections of fans. There was me 
on the sidelines with my Acorn Archimedes A3010, waving my little flag of Risk OS. So in terms, I mean, I know you've obviously used uh, Amiga in particular, but in terms of that whole Atari ST, what was the thing that really drew you to that platform and kept you with it all these years? Just nostalgia for me, really. I mean, that's what we had back in the day. You know, it, it gets uh, it gets some criticism for the uh, the sound chip and stuff, but that's that's kind of the uh, the sound of my childhood, really. Those games. So, yeah, most of us never used the sound chip. That was the bad thing. The reason the reason we bought an ST originally was for the MIDI side of it and for using professional sound gear with it. And um, the the fact that I could write games on it just happened to be a, another thing. So, you know, and the sound chip wasn't bad because it was basically the same as uh, it's, it's this Yamaha sound chip that we'd actually been using on the Apple II. That um, I can't remember what it's called now, but the the, we, the 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 card. But there was actually a lot of stuff done for it because it was essentially a, an FM chip. So again, if you were a synth guy and worked with the DX7s and stuff and knew how FM worked, it, there's a lot of stuff you could do. That that it it, well, it wasn't it wasn't next gen like you know some stuff like the for instance the Amiga did but it was still a competent chip that you could do stuff with because mm, I mean obviously on the MIDI side of things people say oh well why wouldn't you just get an Amiga and use like a serial MIDI interface but obviously the, because the they were was, rubbish well, <laughs> yeah the ST yeah not only was it you know the, the timing a lot better and it it was all built in and it had you know Cubase which the Amiga didn't have um, mm. it was also much cheaper so. <laughs> You know, back in the day, it made perfect sense. But um, yeah, we, we never really did much on the, obviously, I mean, I was just a kid at the time. I think I was like seven or eight when we got our ST. But I think the salesman in the shop basically said that, um, you know, the, the ST is the more kind of professional, the more the more business focused one. So if you want it so your kids can do their homework on it, um, you're better off with the ST because the, the Amiga is all about games and all they'll be doing is playing games all the time. So, <laughs> And then we got the ST and of course, inevitably just ended up playing games on it all the time, as you do. <laughs> as you do indeed and what were some of those key titles that were magical to you oh oh i don't know some of the stuff from my childhood i actually um I, i'm sat here looking at the uh, the ste discovery extra pack box which i've got framed on the wall one of my viewers very kindly uh, sent me an original one and i actually framed it and stuck it on the wall and the i mean the games that came with that i mean you had sim city uh nine lives which is quite a good platformer and Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters, which was one of my favourite games. It was a really, really good port of the arcade game. That was game. a good one, yeah. And uh, a Final Fight as well, which was um, that was also a really good port of of, of an excellent <laughs> arcade game. So, yeah, the, lots of you know, it, it came with um, some really excellent games out of the box, and then you know, kind of moved on to uh, Rick Dangerous and, and kind of all of the the classic stuff back in the day, Lemmings, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So how much homework did you actually do on it? <laughs> I mean, it, we, yeah, yeah, it kind of set me up for the habit of a lifetime, which was, um, you know, work can wait for another day. You know. <laughs> I guess I was quite lucky there because I guess I got it under exactly the same proviso. Oh, yeah, it's, it, it's for homework. It's going to be fantastic for homework. And I think the reason I fell in love with it, it was just in the, in the catalogue. You know, before you had the internet, you had your Little Woods or your Grattan or your Freeman's catalogue, and you'd be flicking through. And as a teenager, you'd be looking at, you know, a bit, I was into technology then, and I was going, oh, look at this. This looks amazing. Acorn Archimedes. And there was no way to really research these things. You either learnt from a friend or a family member or that was it, unless you brought a magazine or something. And even then, magazines could be very biased. But it just looked cool. And I ended up with this cool computer. And I did actually do some homework with it. And you always knew when it was homework because you'd hear the dot matrix printer going off shortly after. And uh, the, the best thing about it, of what a teacher called me up upon, was James. I really like that you're doing these printouts with your homework on. You're the only student, you're the first student to do this, but can you use a smaller font size? <laughs> because when I've asked for two games, I think you're using too big a font and cheating just a little bit. Okay, no problem. I'll reduce <laughs> the font size. 
<laughs> but the problem was then my handwriting turned into absolute rubbish because mm. I was so used to just typing, typing, typing and yep. being able to print from that early on. Goodness gracious how kids get on these days. I hope there's actually more school training to actual handwriting because mine is – I could have become a doctor if I'd had the brains to become a doctor because my handwriting would pass in flying colours for that particular profession. Sorry for any doctors out there. Uh, my school great. friends always thought I was e Egyptian because of uh, I always tended to have a darker skin tone and I wrote in hieroglyphics. <laughs> <laughs> so what other memories do we have of the Atari ST? I mean, Aaron, it looks like you've had some experience with the, yeah. the hardware itself. It was the – my brother actually got one. We, we just got back – this is 86 or so we've just got back from living in hong kong i've been working with apple two uh, apple two pluses and stuff myself but also working on macs at, at work there so i was mostly writing music editing software so synthesizer editing software so this is where the midi thing came in and the apple two had this thing called a roland uh, mp401 thing which is like a big box with midi ridiculously overcomplicated way of programming it and uh, it took me a while but I got it working and most of the time writing the software to do synthesizer editors on this was making the actual interface work because it's this clever thing that's supposed to do all the work for you but it's very very limited so by the time it's gone a year or two on and everything's progressed on the computer side of it it's now stupidly out of date so uh, it's like trying to get a ZX81 to do your graphics for your Spectrum game kind of level of stuff, you know. So, and then my brother gets an, gets a, a 512 and uh, an ST512, and and uh, and I'm like, ooh, that's cool. I'm like, I was the, at the time I was the one mostly playing around with synths and MIDI and stuff. My brother was just getting into it. As it shift, as time shifted, he's become the musician. I. I'm not good enough as a musician to, to, for it not to be a lot of effort to do to make it work. So I, I like the technology side of it, but I'm not a skillful enough musician to not succeed as a musician without it being constant work. So me being lazy, and that's how I got into programming in the first place, I went back to computer games, which is something I can do easily. And I started writing games on the ST. So I was doing it with GFA Basic originally. And my first... My first published game, well, actually, I hadn't helped us. It was our first published game with proper publishing rather than just self-release through a bunch of people we know kind of thing was actually on the ST, which was Jitterbugs on the ST that came out on a cover disc. Back when they paid you for cover discs, I got £150. Wow, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's when the when ST Amiga format was the combined thing. And yeah, they paid me 150 quid for, for Jitterbugs, which was because I'd seen, um, was it Midi Maze, I think it was called, which is the one that's like a Pac-Man game in 3D with up to 16 players uh, using Midi to connect STs together. And things like Stunt Car Racer, where we're using the, the, the serial port and stuff, when should have used Midi, but no. So, so I thought, well, I want to write a Midi-based game. Midi on the ST was so stupidly simple. I, Literally, the, the, the MP4 one had gone away into a cupboard, and I sold it very quickly afterwards. I, I kept my original Apple II clone, but I, I got rid of the 401 to some other musician sucker who, who could work with it. And, um, and I wrote Jitterbugs as a 32-player game over MIDI, because while the MIDI standard is 16 channels, there's nothing stopping you using the MIDI, set, the, the MIDI, MIDI um, communication system to do as many as you want. And I, I kind of arbitrarily just went for 32 because the chances of ever getting 32 STs in the same room on a loop ring of MIDI. So someone might test it one day, but probably not. Sounds like a challenge. And, um, it really does. Yes, yes. Basically, I will revisit one day, but it was based off Steve Jackson's uh, uh, Awful Green Things board game. Which it's, it's itself is a spoof of Aliens where you have a spaceship where the awful green things are suddenly, this egg is brought on board and it spawns the awful green things. And you have to stop them as the crew. One player is playing the awful green things and one player is playing the crew. And as the crew, you have to pick up 
weapons from around the ship, like a fire extinguisher or a crowbar or whatever, and attack the orc and green things. But you do not know what the weapon will do until you first use it. So it might work, but it might make them mutate, or you know, it might just be ineffective or whatever. And I took that idea that a spaceship that's falling into the atmosphere and will burn up after a certain amount of time. And the players were running around the ship trying to rescue animals off this zoo ship, which, again, all the different weapons you can pick up, you have no idea what they will do until you first use them. And some of these animals, of course, will try and eat you. Some of them are like tribbles and they'll, they'll multiply like crazy if you use the wrong weapon on them. And, and you're basically, however many players are playing, you're all just kind of running around trying to get as many of these things off the uh, rescued and then into a life pod which there's always one less than the number of players <laughs> to and get away and score as many points as possible this is like among us on steroids i was thinking among us yeah, <laughs> yeah. That sounds cool yeah well i, I, I we I had, Adam and I said we, we we one day we will revisit jitterbugs and redo it because it, this was done on the st we did it on a 512 it was very you know limited we had borrowed a, another st to actually test it multiplayer and everything and and it, like i said it got picked up for a cover disc and that that was about it and we, we never really did anything with it but there's a there's a game idea it's one i do want to do again not surprised looks like you've got two already interested i'm sure i'll, I'll look out for an atari 512 and see yeah. what I, can but I think i might i think I'm, i think i might do it on a current machine Oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> just, uh, I was just trying to think how many Atari STs I've actually got. I don't think I've quite got thirty-two of them, but uh, maybe uh, <laughs> five or six. Maybe the fact is, I have to think about it and count, though. Yeah, it still shows there's yeah. not a few. <laughs> just thinking how many I can see from here, and you know how many more there might be in the loft and in the garage and elsewhere. Oh <laughs> well, if, if you've got any second-hand Atari STs, I may be knocking at your door and uh, seeing if we can do a deal. Do a deal. But yeah. I'm the. I'm going to make a confession now. I remember doing a podcast probably a few years ago, and I was under the impression I had my Acorn Archimedes still in the garage, but it was boxed up somewhere, and I just had to dig it out. And my garage is just boxes of boxes of stuff. Some of it good, some of it not so good. And then I realised probably about ten years ago, I was moving house. I'd just started a new full time job. I was giving up freelance journalism. I needed a consistent wage from month to month, and I had to belt it down to the south of England compared to where I was, which was further up north. So it wasn't actually that far south. But it was south. Just go with the south part of it. And I remember having this mass sort out because I had to downsize. I was going from a big house to this little apartment. So you can see where I'm going with this, can't you? And then I distinctly remember boxing up like my 486 pc my atari 65xe my icon archimedes and realizing all of them had gone horribly yellowed the acorn didn't boot up uh the atari wouldn't boot up or turn on and the 486 pc was in parts because often i'd upgrade and take stuff with it and go into like the next machine but i'd still in my head i must have mentally blocked it out but then I realized once I'd cleaned out the garage that I'd actually bloody chut them away because I thought these things have got no value. They're old. They've yellowed. They're not turning on. And now, of course, it's one of my biggest regrets. And like any gentleman in their 40s, you're bound to have accrued a few regrets over a lifetime. But this is one that really knocks me. And unfortunately, because I'm really into following people like Reese, following Steve's gaming progress and his retirement announcements, Aaron's fantastic stories. I keep reminding myself of you silly sausage. I'm thinking much worse in my head. Trust me. <laughs> Why on earth? I mean, I had no idea years later there was going to be this big retro search and the things that didn't work would suddenly be, you know, there'd be big guides and videos on how to fix these things and retro brighting. What the, what the hell is retro brighting? Oh, it's this thing. It turns these yellow things into their original colors. And it's like, so, yeah, that's my confession. Hopefully I'll feel a little bit better about that now. But, yeah, I am absolutely gutted. And I hope that doesn't lose you any uh, followers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was just looking on eBay, which is probably not the best place to look, but 
it's like Akon Archimedes and what they're going for. And it's like 600 quid, the mouse alone, probably like 40 quid. And it's just like, oh my God, James, what were you thinking? But I'm, I, there must be lots of other people out there where they think these things don't have value. I'll just put them on the street side or in the bin. And years later, who knew? I mean, a, another example is. I was a big PC gamer in the 486 days and onwards. I had 3DFX graphics cards. So I bought loads of games, point-and-click adventures, the original boxes, the CDs, and I had shelves full of these boxes. Downsizing. I've got no room for these things. I'll chuck them away. <laughs> and now, of course, trying to get hold of games in the original boxes in a great condition. And trust me, they were perfect. I'd take the disc out of the box. It would go into a CD rack. And then the box would just go up on the shelf. So they, they were flawless. Not a mark on them. <laughs> I will stop depressing myself and everybody else now. But as you can see, I need to get that off my chest. As, as, as a man in his 50s who's gone through being a man in his 40s with lots of regrets <laughs> and leaving things behind, you have to learn to not have any regrets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, you, you, just, you, just end up, you just end up stressing over the amount of things that you have given away, been, you know, or, or otherwise, doesn't matter. What have you got? You know, if you've got cool stuff now, and you or you're doing cool stuff now, that's all that counts. Well, I mean, thankfully, I've got myself a nice little retro collection. I've got my uh, my Mega Drive, my SNES, my NES, which is the most yellowed NES you've probably seen in your entire life. So that seems like a good retro brighting uh, temptation at some point. I've got my Sega Saturn, the original model. Is it zero? Which runs great, except for the power supply that died in spectacular fashion with a puff of smoke coming out the side of it. But I replaced that with a modern alternative, and that's fine now. Dreamcast, which is like this wonderful Sega last stand of we're going to do consoles, and they finished on a high, even if it didn't sell that amazingly well. So I've still got my nice collection. <laughs> Atari ST is probably something I'm looking at next, maybe an Amiga at some point. I'll probably go for the A600 because it's the smaller of the two and it's a little bit easier to store and everything. But I've waffled on for long enough. And, I mean, Steve, when we talk about your history, what were some yes. of the platforms you owned that you would have used to write your stories and for the games and all the other things you would have done for the games? Well, I never owned an, an Atari ST or an Amiga. Did I a Commodore 64? I bet you didn't have an Acorn Archimedes. No, no. <laughs> no it's funny, actually. Um, you know, I got a Commodore 64, and this was, you know, a long time before I joined the games industry. And I started playing around with, you know, animating some graphics and, and stuff like this back then. Because one of the things that struck me was that nobody was properly animating any graphics on, on you know, in games. Uh, well, that was until, you know, sort of one of my favourite games came out, and that was uh, The Staff of Karnath, which which was brilliantly done. Uh, and, and that had some really cool animated um, sprites for the time. So I tried to do a lot of that, and I tried to... Ian was sort of write some games, but I could never get into the machine code, so you know I couldn't get basic to do what I wanted. <laughs> so that kind of got pushed to one side, um, and it and so kind of like things went by the by until you know I sort of like I became I got made redundant from a job, and I thought oh, I've got to do something creative. I can't do you know a job I hate again. <laughs> so. So I, so I started, you know, sort of talking to people, and and someone I knew knew that Charles wanted to, you know, somebody, you know, at uh, Revolution. So I applied and and got the job, which was good. And my first computer, or the first computer I used when I was at Revolution, was a two eight six PC, and there were only a limited number of seats in in the company connected to the network, the internal network, because, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't have, you know, sort of like any number then, 
you had to have five or ten or something like this. We we only had five people connected. So I had to, to do my work, on, put, save it onto a floppy disk and pass it to somebody else to uh, put onto the network and then get it into the game, you see. So, so you know, it was, it was crazy. And um, I remember when we got a computer with four meg of RAM, and that was a big day. <laughs> Jeez, that was a lot, you know. No one well, would have my, any my, more. my ST I worked with my had a twenty meg hard drive. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow! Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hard drive back in those days would have been absolutely yeah. mind blowing. It, it was. It was when I'd been loaned by um, Mandarin Software, who was doing a lot of the stuff stuff with, and it, they dropped it. The reason they loaned it to me was because someone there had dropped it. It was one of the actual Atari metal hard drives, the, the, the 20 meg one. And they just didn't trust it. The, the, the actual indicator light for it had actually fallen inside it. <laughs> so they gave it to me to use instead, you know. <laughs> wow, just because it of the light. Fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, going back to the, the CRT thing, I mean, sometimes, you know, when you're using CRT tubes, you know, sort of the, the, they can make the graphic, the final graphics look good. But sometimes when you're editing those pixels, it can be a bit fiddly. And, you know, so you, you end up kind of peering at the screen like this, you know. But it's, but I, I learned an awful lot about color palettes and, and, you know, sort of like making the best of, of, of the colors available. Because, you know, sort of one of the things, one of the first things I got involved with was, you know, taking some of the background paintings that for Beneath the Steel Sky. Most of them were done by a guy called Les Pace based on Dave Gibbons' sketches. And they were scanned in and then converted down to, to you know, like 320 by 240. And then we had to reduce them down to 100, excuse me, 128 colours for for the PC, but and then down to 32 colours for the Amiga. And grief, that was <laughs> that was an adventure in itself because those 32 colours also had to include colours that were suitable for the sprites, you know, for for the you know Foster and Joey and and all the other characters. So, you know, each room had its own slight variations on, on those palettes for the sprites, you know, things. And it was it was a lot of work, but it was it was a skill that I'll probably never ever use again now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you'll find some time in your gaming retirement to dabble with that, because it's I'd say like we were discussing earlier. The retro stuff, the the style of it, yes, it's harking back to some of those days, but it's not always with the same technical limitations you would have experienced when you were using the hardware of that time. So the Ooh. number of colors isn't always factored in necessarily. The, the number of pixels, how you would spread them around, all these other factors. To see how the technical limitations inspired, even, I mean, at the time, I guess you would have thought, wow, the resolution, the things I could do. So even though you were downscaling from 128 colours to 32, that 128 colours would have been like, wow. I guess the hardest bit would have been you would have seen the original drawing without the limitation, and you were scanning that in and then reducing mm. and then reducing again. And maybe there was a part of your soul that sank a little, thinking, oh, if only I could have that original one in the game, how amazing this would look. Yes, and I think that, that I mean one of the things that we tried to do was act actively, you know, move away from the pixel, you know, pixelization as as Aaron mentioned earlier. You know, you were trying to create as much you know anti-aliasing as you could without it looking blurry. You know, so you were trying to put this in, and obviously the sprites couldn't have that anti-aliased edge, so they were all you know the edges of the sprites themselves were always blocky. You know, and and I don't know. There, there were a lot of background sprites where we looked for ways to to blend them in a lot more, so they didn't stand mm. out as 
oh yeah, that's that's something I've got to interact with. <laughs> you know, so so there was there was a lot of skill and a lot of thought that went into into these things. I mean, one of the animators at Earth Revolution when he was working on Beneath the Steel Sky, he did some amazing things. I mean, if you look, if you remember, there was Doctor Beck's surgery, um, and there was a guy laid on the bed with his, his stomach opened up you know sort of but one of the best things about him was the way he blinked and he only had you know a pixel for each eye but you really felt as though he was blinking and that was just done with color change on those dots on those single pixels you know sort of and it was just so cleverly done you know and and, and you learn so much you know working with people who who've gone through that that hard work of figuring out how to, you know, maximise those those single pixels. It's funny, isn't it? Because obviously the, the game you know very well, Broken Sword, that was later released on the Nintendo Wii. And you'd be there with your Wii remote and you'd be, I guess, doing your pointer to try and get it where you wanted to go. And there were some Wii-specific puzzles in which didn't work too particularly well because you couldn't get the accuracy with the recontrol half the time. And it certainly wasn't a Motion Plus compatible title. But one of the things it did add was you'd have that little character posters in the corner and they'd represent the characters talking where in previous versions of Broken Sword, shall we say the original Broken Sword on the PC, you'd literally see the little sprite heads moving and that you'd be imagining more of the little sprite heads moving. And I actually found those bigger posters far more distracting and taking me out of the game than just those little few pixels of George Stobart talking to Nico. And that's a weird thing, isn't it? Because you think the bigger, the higher resolution graphic in the corner would then bring you into that character. But it kind of took me out of, I can actually still see that full-size character on the screen with the surroundings, but that corner poster just felt detached. From that, I don't know how you feel about that, Steve. Well, no, I can perfectly understand that, and I think that you know, sort of, you go back to the original game, and it's still the best version of Broken Sword. I mean, I, I did a bit of work on on the director's cut, but I think, but I disliked the way that it started with Nico, um, with Nico's story, and then suddenly it was like she was pushed to one side, and and it was suddenly Joji's story. I mean, there was, there was some good puzzles in that in that new stuff, but but it, it just felt wrong. It just felt as though the, the balance of of the whole opening part of the game had, had, had changed, and you know, it, it it didn't improve it. And you expect a director's cut to improve it, and I don't think it did. But going back to the portraits, I mean, we we created portraits for the GBA version. Because you know, sort of the the sprites on the screen were just so small, so we created these portraits, and that then got carried over into into other versions. So when you know they created the version, you know, for from you know mobile phones and things like this, and then you know obviously direct cuts and and so on, it it, it just stuck and. Yeah, a lot of the time I don't think it was necessary, you know, sort of it, you know, particularly when when you look at the original version and the original characters, um, a lot of work went into animating those, talking, you know, and and what happened, there was some, something reasonably clever. The heads would move in a random fashion, you know, the mouths and stuff, um, you know, the, and this was created as a long, fairly long sequence of random, so it could go on for ages. But then if the volume of the talking actually dropped below a certain level, it would stop and restart. <laughs> and when we did the Italian version, you know, we got, we got it translated and, and recorded in Italian, the guy who was, who was in charge of that <laughs> actually said, well, it's amazing how you've done that lip-syncing and i'm looking and thinking well we didn't do any lip-syncing well it works really well in in italian and it was just this run the way this random stop start aspect just fitted in with 
with seemingly like you know lip syncing or, or pseudo lip syncing, <laughs> and and it, you know this this Italian director you know just just was convinced that that it was some sort of lip syncing. So so yeah you know sort of what seems to be quite a simple thing ends ends up being quite quite cool, and and so yeah you know sort of you got these characters animated while they were talking but those little portraits didn't didn't they <laughs> and that was you know you feel as though well unless you're going to animate them why why put them there you know i think even worse unfortunately for the wii version that the portraits were there okay fine but then the actual character that the they weren't moving is if that part was lost or it was partially broken. I can't remember now, but certainly it wasn't exactly like the original, which was a shame. And I guess anyone who hadn't played the original wouldn't know this was broken sword to them. But of course, I'd played the original a lot and uh, <laughs> I had the Wii version because I thought, I want to see what it's like with a Wii remote. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was, you know, it's, it's tough, isn't it, for people when we've experienced it the first time around. And then we get, and I mean, particularly now, there's remasters for everything almost. If they haven't made a remaster yet, they probably will at some point. Yeah. I should like to point out at this point, hand shot first. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ultimate remaster messing up of everything. <laughs> Raz of the Triads has literally just come out on Steam. I think it was just uh, yesterday or a couple oh, of days yes. ago. So I've, I've got to try that out because I was a big fan of the original. It's excellent. <laughs> I can highly recommend it. Oh, fantastic. Um, the music stands out for me. It was just uh, fantastic. I think, was it Lee Jackson? Was that his name? Who did the music for Rise of the Trads and who did uh, the intro to Duke Nukem 3D. Real big heritage, uh, what work he's done. But yeah, the nostalgia trip has been pushed hard right now. I mean, Reese, you've got so much... If we want to call it competition in the YouTube space with people doing retro stuff. And it could be so easily to be drowned out in this big voice. I mean, it's lovely for us to have so many people interested in retro, particularly people who hadn't been there the first time around and they're like going back and experiencing it for the first time. But, you know, it's really hard to find your niche, isn't it, nowadays? Yeah, I mean, my niche is just stuff that i'm interested in i mean i make videos that i want to watch and i I kind of tend to go for stuff that other people aren't doing um just because i like to be a bit different really but so you know there's a million people out there making videos about mario and and all that kind of stuff so the atari stuff isn't particularly um i mean you know there are some great channels out there covering atari stuff but like on the st side it's it's not it's not nearly as well kind of covered as, as the amiga and and kind of the 90s pc side of things so it's just interesting to kind of approach things from a slightly different angle i think absolutely and i think anything like this it's making sure you're enjoying the process as well and having a community behind you saying y'all really enjoyed that video did you know about this also happened around that time and there was this game it wasn't released and etc 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 and it's just filling the gaps maybe in your own knowledge i mean i know when i've been doing this there's a lot of stuff i don't know about retro even though i was living it i'm retro but there's still so much i learned i had no idea you could mini together atari sts and have a 32 player game i mean come on (laughs) (laughs) so you know this is this is what you learn by being in this space and it's fantastic i think the uh, the the community is kind of one of the most important aspects for me because there's a lot of people doing this and they make videos and they're they're kind of like shouting into the void and they're not kind of building a community around their channel which is something i've always been sort of very keen on uh, from the very early days which is something i picked up from from neil um rmc Um, and you know i've always been sort of a very active member of that community and uh, decided to steal that idea from him essentially Well, um, Reece, among others, I wish you all the very best of luck with your channel and all your endeavors. Uh, Thank you. I'm certainly a regular watcher, and I enjoyed your solar panel videos. I've enjoyed your Atari ST videos. 
It's been good stuff. And Reese Rambles, I wish I'd thought of that idea just to do something sort of on the side as an addition to everything else, just to find out a little bit more what goes on behind the scenes, because often that is it. James, James Jabbers. James <laughs> Jabbers. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I was trying to, no, I will not steal Reese's idea. That was man will be stumbles. <laughs> but, you know, I was actually thinking if I was going to do what the name would be. That's brilliant. Thank you. But yeah, to have that behind the scene information, it's like the people who would buy a DVD and they would sometimes buy it just to have the sort of audio commentary and the behind the scenes and the deleted scenes. It's that aspect you don't always get with a lot of the channels. So it's nice to have that. And not everybody's into that. Sometimes they just want the main channel and then they'll flick onto something else. But, you know, there's a lot of people who do want to know the thoughts and the decisions that, you know, why did I cover this and not this? Why did I say this and not that? Here's actually my opinion compared to what this other person has said. It's nice to have the entire picture of it. So I appreciate you doing that reason. I hope you continue. I'm noticing um, a lot a lot of YouTubers are doing that, but they're, they're putting the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff on their Patreon kind of page. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Because then you've got to keep something for the, the core fans that are paying for it kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a... this. Obviously, if they're doing it full time, you're going to have to do things like yeah. that because, you know, it's it's your job. You've got to make money out of it. I mean, I run Pixel Refresh. I get hardly any income from it. There's no advertisements on it. It's literally anyone who's kind enough to donate. I do some of the fan-made enhancements for some of the point-and-click adventure games, and I get some donations out of that. It's not a lot, but I appreciate every penny that comes through. But I'm doing it for the fun of it. It's definitely not a full-time thing. I do it for the fun. I'm doing it because I'm doing something for the community and the community to get involved and we have some great discussions. I get to meet people like Reese and yourselves. And you're expanding your reach and just learning new things all the time. And that is, in itself, the reason I do it. I'm learning all the time and meeting new interesting people where I'm finding all this wonderful stuff out. I mean, the story's from you guys, all three of you. I always find fascinating. And Aaron, we need a podcast just to talk about trains. But anyway, this one thing... <laughs> and, the, and, and the colour blue, of course. <laughs> well, funny enough, I was going to say, before we go, we've been... keep. I've literally got a post-it note right here with this written down. The colour blue... I have no idea what the context of this is, other than it's the colour blue. So, Aaron, now is your time. Tell me. Right. So this is this is one of my favourite war stories from the, the, the various times of the working on games. I was working on a game called uh, Aladdin: Vizier's Revenge, which was a follow-up to the original Aladdin 16-bit side-on game, but on the PlayStation One. So it was a 3D game, and it was using the Croc engine. I just finished working on Croc Two. I got pulled in to the Aladdin project because basically. Disney had signed Argonaut to do an Aladdin game, paid them a huge sum of money, and six months later, because of various reasons, they didn't actually put a proper team together that knew how to use the engine. They didn't have anything. So I got grabbed off Crop 2, which we finished the PlayStation version, and we were doing the Dreamcast version that never got released. We were doing the extra levels for that. So I got pulled off that to... Um, to save it and basically, right, okay, here's what we can do. Here's how we fix it. So that gets going. And it was a nightmare project for a lot of reasons. A lot of it being Disney, where it's in the days before Disney really got their heads together about games. So, uh, but also Disney and our producer didn't get along. So every three months we get some random guy from Disney would turn up as a, as a Disney external producer do the classic clap his arms around and you know mess everything up tell us this is disney's viewpoint on things one of the earliest ones was we weren't allowed to have who in the game because we had a scene where aladdin's going through a market and there's a there's a thing of camel dung that you can make knock one of the guards into which is an absolute classic trope of comedy films is the bad guy ends up in the poo yeah, yeah, that's the future, anybody. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's one of the. It happens all the time, and and um, 
Disney, no, no, can't have food, can't have food, right, okay. And at one point, you can't have animals in the game because they decided it was risky that the player might want to harm animals. But it's, yeah, yeah, so basically, we, we, we just start going like this every time and, and kind of just get on with it and try and work around them and so on. Can you jump in a car lo- in the original game? Or have I imagined that? Yeah, I know, I know. This is just like, <laughs> what I mean, there's... It was it was random nonsense because it was a different producer every single time yeah, they, yeah. they came out, and some different person had put their input in, and, and and it was them not really knowing where they wanted to go, and I think a lot of it was them wanting to annoy our producer because he'd annoyed them or whatever, you know. It was this whole nightmare, and it went on for eighteen months, and and it shouldn't have, uh, and it's so. All the way running through this, we have this backstory kind of being given to us, and it is quite literally like like the sort of games where you have the guys chatting at the top and telling you some pointless bit of backstory that you'd normally click through about Robin Williams suing Disney because this was all done at the same time that Robin Williams had got annoyed by the fact that Disney had marketed his image and his voice as genie on all sorts of commercial stuff that he told them he didn't want them to do. And at the time, we didn't know that. All we knew that was they, they, he'd said they hadn't paid him enough because he just got standard Disney voice actor rates. But it was actually because they he'd done it on the agreement that they wouldn't commercialise his voice for McDonald's stuff and all this kind of thing, you know. And uh, so there's this long-running lawsuit all the way behind while well, we're writing the game. And they just... Oh, and by the way, yeah, the, 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 he said this and they've said this kind of thing each time. So we're kind of having a running commentary on what's going on with, with the lawsuit. Now, we're about three months away from finishing the game. Pretty much everything is done. You know, all the models, programming, everything. And we're just kind of refining things by this point and getting ready for the European release. Disney guy turns up. doesn't have any random stuff. He says, oh, yeah, we, we, the lawyers are getting a bit funny, though. Because it, it looks like we may have to settle with Robin Williams, or we may have we, he may actually win the case. And if he wins the case, he will claim that Genie is his. So you can't use Genie in the game, and of course he's a cornerstone of the game. Yeah, you know he's, he's the secondary main character. So so okay, right, quick thinking, no problem. We'll paint him pink and call him Gina. It'll be his sister is in the game. We're already we're already using the guy who does um, that does uh, Homer Simpson as the voice actor for him, so we'll just swap Gina to being Gina, so the genie to being Gina, and get a different voice actor. That that's not too horrible. And the Disney guy goes, yeah, but the problem is he's blue, and he anything in the game that's blue, you're is going to get us pulled up. We, the lawyers do not want to risk you using the color blue anywhere. Well, even water, even water. You, you've got to go through the entire game and get rid of the colour blue. Yeah, everywhere. Any, even if it's a dot. And we're like, okay. So Disney guy goes away. We have a bit of a discussion. And we're going, like, this is full levels of... And go, yes, it is full levels of word, but you'll get me beat like I did last time. <laughs> so... Um, we said, right, let's do the Gina thing because it's fairly trivial. The animators can put together a Gina and we can easily swap Genie back in if need be. We're going to work on the assumption that this is all going to, something's going to happen, but we're going to have one or the other. But the colour blue thing, if the colour blue gets deleted, the whole game's going to probably get deleted because if he, if he goes to the level of you can't even use the colour blue, they're just going to pull the title and we just, you know, get, get them on, the, we, we get our royalties anyway kind of thing. So we left it. We did a quick test with Gina and everything showed that to, G- to, to those levels without any blue in to, to Disney, select a few levels. And they were happy, you know. And then a month later, Disney settled with Robin Williams, gave him a Picasso or something. And it might have been a Van Gogh. He was, they gave him a nice painting, you know, and they, they said, oh, we're ever so sorry. We won't do it again. They did. <laughs> Signed him up for the third movie. And it all went away completely. We were allowed to use Genie the whole lot. Colour blue, not a problem. And we just went on and released the game. And then we did the European release of the game, which is great. Lots of tricky puzzles, lots of fun. And then they said, oh, American kids aren't really clever enough to do puzzles, we've decided. So the American version of the game, you've got to dumb it down. 
what do you mean dummy? Uh, right. So, so the, the, these puzzles, yeah, those puzzles have got to go. This bit where you've got to, you've got to open, work out how to open a door by finding it. You have to go to go. And literally the game became walk through the story while waving a sword around. At one point, they didn't want sword fighting in, in the Aladdin game, despite the fact it's a major cause. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you know. Wow. P- properly. Uh, Mental. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. I love wait, I've made you wait how many podcasts for you to tell us? <laughs> Four or five? <laughs> oh, man. That's ridiculous. Well, look, I'm glad you got the title out in the end, even if it was on such unusual yeah, it, circumstances. It was, the, the the European version was ended up being quite good. We had some some great puzzles in it. My my the best bit was the my Basque hard door uh, puzzle, which was a very cleverly done puzzle. Two years after we released the game, we got a phone call at Argonaut from someone saying, "How do I get past this puzzle? And how did you get through it?" Well, I phoned Disney, and Disney didn't know. And they gave they they worked out you guys had done it, so they gave us your phone number. Oh wow! <laughs> and he's been playing the game, and he's been spent two months trying to get past this particular puzzle. Oh no! And, and I said, Ah, you're not going to like this. <laughs> you, you're in a pyramid. You're walking up to a door in front of you, and behind the door is massive amounts of treasure. And you're like, oh, good! So you walk up to the door. Door comes down. So you walk back. Door goes up. So you walk slowly towards the door. It comes down slowly. And you go back, and go up. So you, you right up, tippy toe towards the door, and it doesn't come down. He's like, nearly at the bang. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you basically keep trying this for ages and ages and ages. And because you're so focused on trying to get past this door, you don't notice the brightly lit secret door to your left. The absolutely obvious that you've seen, you've found so many secret doors by this point, and this is an obvious, like literally light shining on it, secret door that will take you straight round to the treasure. The, this whole door in front of you with, with, with a picture of the cat, cat goddess Bast on it, and it's quite a hard door, it is, is basically there to distract you from, from the, oh, wow. the way round. <laughs> so no, I'm oh, going to end the podcast then by saying nearly as bad as the goat puzzle from Broken Sword. And thank you very much, Aaron Fothergirl, Steve Inns, and Reese from Control Alt Reese. And that's another Game Gadget podcast. <laughs> See you next time, folks. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.